Welcome to Point Two Law Review. My name is John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. Oh, oh, don't sell yourself short. You're the prophet, Carson Messersmith. <laughs> you predicted who would win the basketball contest of this year. That's true. I did. I wish I could have predicted it earlier. Uh, you know, picking it once there was only a couple of teams left <laughs> yeah. you know, makes me... With with all due deference, I mean, you had one four shot, first of all. Just yeah. Pie in the sky. And then they were pretty much dominating everything. Yeah, honestly, one of the more dominant runs. I know you don't follow basketball, but to win every tournament game by double digits. Big after, deal. And, and being a four seed, that's kind of wild. Sounds wild. Yeah, I mean, just on paper, it's it's goofy. But now we have warm weather, we're on to baseball season. Oh, it's it's totally baseball. No other news legally uh, to speak of. No, nothing, nothing going on in the legal world at all. Um, Legal nor politics. Nothing going on there. No. Uh, Radio silence from that stuff. So we'll focus here on the Nebraska Supreme Court opinions. Nebraska Court of Appeals decisions for the week of April 4th, 2023 to April 7th, 2023, which is where we are today. And we got some things dropped down from the Nebraska Supreme Court um, this morning. Yeah. And let's talk about those. I think you got the first. Well, yeah, let's, quick let's, rundown. Yeah, let's go through the ex parte summary real quick. A uh, little haiku thingy, whatever we want to call it. Go ahead. Uh, Ryan versus Ryan is the first case. And the thing to take from this is final appealable order. Brower v. Hartman and Hartman Hay Company. Contingency fee agreement. In uh, Ray Estate of Dr. Wayne Ryan. Will contest and right of interested parties. State v. Pierce Dion Williams. Speedy trial balloon. Trials have rules. Trials have rules. I love it when you leave us with. See, now I want to listen. You know, and I'll, I'll, I'll just tell you that later. I'll, yeah, yeah, that's a tease. Yeah, no, yeah, you gotta bury the lead here. <laughs> if if you want to hear John. Talk about this. You gotta listen. Trials on. have rules. Yeah. Hey, right. let's go ahead and right, let's light this candle. Here we go. Uh, so Ryan versus Ryan. This is a case coming out of the District Court of Douglas County, and I I want to preface this by saying that both cases that I handled today involve um, substantially the same set of facts and all of the same parties, uh, which is kind of a unique thing. But um, the gist of this is that there are a group of the uh, Ryan children who are fighting over uh, their father's trust and some amendments that he made to that trust after uh, their mother had passed. And so here, two of the uh, Ryan children, uh, two daughters, are the uh, primary plaintiffs in this case, and they were um, suing their uh, other uh, siblings in order to say that uh, parts of this trust should be invalidated. Um, and so this uh, lawsuit's happening in district court, and eventually um, a couple of the siblings uh, reach in a reach a settlement agreement as a part of a forced mediation. And so then after that, they file a stipulated motion f- uh, for the court to approve the settlement agreement and to dismiss um, some of the Ryan defendants and then um, dismiss the claims against them with prejudice. 
Eventually, the court um, approves this settlement and agreement, and um, one of the other siblings uh, says that, no, this shouldn't be um, what should have happened, and so they appeal. And the issue essentially uh, comes here is whether or not this was a uh, final appealable order, um, and the court goes through a very detailed analysis, and I will be honest, this is one of the more uh, convoluted procedural opinions I have seen in a while, um, and even if my brain was not in a fog of um, Friday, and I was reading this with fresh eyes, I think this is an opinion that you're going to have to look at a, a couple of times uh, in order to uh, fully digest it. But I digress. Um, it was evaluated essentially as whether or not it was a special proceeding under the Nebraska Uniform Trust Code, um, and they evaluate whether or not there were um, enough findings here to um, have this be a special proceeding and then a final appealable order. And they address a lot of different things. One, um, the things that need to exist in order to have um, a final appealable order. Importantly, they note that there need to be specific findings to facilitate appellate review, um, particularly when, like here, uh, the reasons that, um, you know, they're the... Uh, final appealable order existed. Um, and so here they said that they don't have those things, that there weren't specific findings in order to actually have the final appealable order. Uh, but then the Supreme Court says that even since they don't have those findings, that they then can review the record to determine whether or not there should have been um, a certification um, in order to find that this was a uh, final appealable order. And so here they go through and, and talk about whether this should be uh, certified as a final judgment on a claim and whether or not they should have been able to appear. And here they go through the record and find that that didn't happen and that um, there were remaining claims that existed that were um, distinct from the claims against the other siblings. Um, and so here, uh, even though you know, some of these claims had been disposed of and essentially had been resolved and the district court had certified this agreement that didn't dispose of all the claims and so there wasn't something um, to be appealed from. And so the Supreme Court ends up uh, vacating this order and dismissing this appeal, essentially saying that, you know, there's a lot more issues of fact uh, to be dealt with here. Uh, but the important piece to take from this, and, and that's the weeds that I didn't get into, is uh, just dealing with um, certifications of judgments and final appealable orders, especially in, in issues uh, with trusts and with estates, because when you have so many parties and interested parties, um, when do we actually have a final appealable order? When do we have a certification of judgment? When do we have findings that we can appeal from? Um, in this case, again, it gets lost absolutely in the weeds on um, procedural issues, but procedural issues that are super important. And so what you'll find uh, the theme for me today is procedural issues in uh, trusts and estate cases. And so if you have something where you're worried about uh, worried about procedure under the Uniform Trust Code, uh, this is a case to take a long look at, and you're going to have to take a long look at, at it because it is 19 pages of dense, dense uh, civil procedure um, the wet work, for lack of a better term. And so uh, I would encourage everyone to take a look at that. Um, but that's that's kind of the gist of what I got there. You know, cases are fun when you have to draw a map to yeah. figure out where things are going um, and then cross things out and say, oh, well, this person's actually over here. That's, that's hard uh, sometimes. So thank you for leading us through that one. I have uh, Sig Brower versus, and as Brower Law Office versus Kent Hartman and Hartman Hay Company, LLC. This is a case where uh, Mr. Brower brought an action following uh, a 
representation of Kent Hartman and Hartman K. And Kent had a brother named Ken. Well, has a brother, I'm assuming, named Ken. And he sued everybody saying they didn't pay on this contingency fee agreement that we had and they owed him more than um, they otherwise would have owed him. There was around $3,500 that they paid already. He said on the hourly billing agreement he had with them, they owed him another $3,500 roughly. And not only that, uh, they owed one-third of any debt canceled during this other agreement and during his representation. So the uh, allegations revolve around um, the Hartman Hay Company being involved in some litigation where they believed they would ultimately owe or, or they had a judgment pending or presumably pending for around $127,000. And rather than do an hourly agreement for that, uh, Mr. Brower did a one-third agreement by whatever he could get that reduced by uh, would be what he would be uh, ultimately end up uh, being part of his compensation for representation of them. So he had this contingency fee agreement, and then he also had an hourly bill, uh, billing agreement with them. So he billed by the hour, and he did a one-third agreement by whatever he could get it reduced. The Appleys in this case, uh, called it a reverse contingency fee. So whatever you get lower uh, than what is potentially owed is what the fee is. There's also an issue here regarding uh, fraudulent misrepresentation uh, because it's uh, one point, I, I think one of the individuals here, Kent or uh, the other individual, signed a guarantee for the other individual and uh, Mr. Brower brought in a expert to say those were the same signatures and they were likely signed at the same time by the same person. Um, so he proved uh, to a certain extent, I guess, um, that there was potential fraud on behalf of the litigants in signing that guarantee. Now, so we get up to the county court level. The county court says, um, yes, they owe you on the hourly billing agreement. That's fine. You proved that within your billings. I'm not going to do, and he says, or the court said, we're not going to do the one third because um, it's not reasonable and it doesn't uh, you know, equate to anything. There was nothing there. There was no net gain on behalf of the client, so there was nothing that they can potentially owe you there. And there was also an issue regarding 34A admissions. Um, Mr. Brower issued 34A admission requests to the defendants. In this case, they failed to respond, and then I think they got counsel at a certain point, and then they asked to be able to have leave to amend those and withdraw the the admissions, but the court denied that claim. Goes through a little bit of uh, how that happened here. And then it gets up to the district court. The district court goes through the process of what is a reasonable fee and whether those agreements should be had. And regarding the fraudulent misrepresentation claim, uh, they said that Mr. Brower didn't prove any damages. Uh, so there couldn't the fraudulent misrepresentation claim would fail because there weren't any damages proven at trial. So we get up to district court. District court basically says the same thing, and although it awards costs based out of that contingency fee agreement because those were hard costs that were um, you know, due to Mr. Brower. So now we get up to the Nebraska Supreme Court. Nebraska Supreme Court spends a great deal of time saying, you know, what is a reasonable fee? Uh, a lawyer owes a duty to clients to only charge a reasonable fee and, and whether this is a reasonable fee or not, and uh, they get into the weeds quite a bit uh, regarding that. And they make, uh, more specifically, they make no uh, decision about whether what the Appleys have labeled a quote, reverse contingency fee agreement 
is enforceable under Nebraska law. So this doesn't necessarily affect those things, whether it's enforceable or not. But the Nebraska Supreme Court affirmed the district court saying, we're not going to give you the contingency fee money but uh, you, or because there's nothing there. You didn't prove damages on the fraudulent misrepresentation, so there's nothing there. And uh, we will award you the hourly billing uh, outstanding bills that you have there. Um, so that's something that they were awarded. So um, there you go. That's Brower versus Hartman Hay Company. Okay, next case we come to is um, in Ray Estate of Dr. Wayne Ryan. And dun, 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 as I already said uh, before, we're back with the uh, same parties, the Ryan children. Uh, this case originates out of a uh, will contest of Dr. Wayne Ryan uh, by one of his five children, uh, Stacy. Um, and here, uh, essentially, the issue is Stacy contests um, a um, will that was done uh, by Dr. Ryan and says that you know it should have been invalidated for reasons of undue influence and and uh, a couple other various uh, claims and. Uh, while this is uh, still pending, uh, Stacy, Tim, and Carol, Stacy, Tim, Carol, and Stephen, so four of the five children, file a joint stipulation for dismissal uh, with prejudice of this claim against the will. Um, the issue with that is that one of the five children was not a party to that agreement and objected to the stipulation for dismissal of the will contest. Um, the district court overrules the um, objection and uh, the motion on that and says that, um, yes, you know, the uh, parties here can file this joint stipulation and dismiss. And um, here the big issue on appeal um, that it appears is that uh, Stacy was the one who filed it and is the petitioner, so shouldn't she have had the right to dismiss uh, the will contest with um, prejudice under um, our civil procedure uh, provisions? And here the Nebraska Supreme Court says no. And the reason they say no is because um, parties to a proceeding of probating of a will do not have the power to dismiss because it is an in rem proceeding. So it is the court's proceeding at that point. And so the court is the one, uh, not the parties, who is investigating and deciding whether or not a will is valid and making those findings. And so since it's out of the petitioner's hands, essentially, um, all of the individuals who are interested parties have a right to have those uh, or have a right to have their rights protected. And so therefore, you can't just unilaterally dismiss like you could under um, another civil proceeding, because here we're looking um, at a probate proceeding being a unique proceeding um, initiated under the Nebraska Probate Code. And so um, it's an in-rem proceeding, and therefore um, you cannot just uh, summarily dismiss that. And so here um, it is, they, they say that the petition is filed under the further operation or control of the, or um, the instant the petition is filed, the further operation or control of the matter passes out of the hands of the petitioner and into the hands of the court. And here the court had not made any findings regarding the will or the validity of the will. And so therefore, in order to protect um, the interested party, which here was the um, child that didn't file the joint stipulation, um, there, that objection should have been allowed in the motion to um, proceed on the um, hearings to invalidate the will should um, have been allowed to stand. And so the court reversed and remanded. You know, I, I, I was listening to that and I, my initial reaction was like, whoa, what are they going to say here? But now, yeah, after you explain it, that makes complete sense uh, why it's an interim proceeding and they have to uh, keep the estate open. 
Well, yeah, and I mean, I think the big thing there is, uh, and this would be the exact re- reason, so if a bunch of the siblings got together and said, okay, you know, whatever, we can figure this out, or, you know, we find a way to get along, that doesn't mean you can just invalidate the rights of the other interested parties. And so, you know, that proceeding is is with the court now, and so it gets to proceed on its own. So, yeah, I thought, it, again, there's some good discussion here in, in Estate Central. So I guess um, thank you to the Ryan children for giving us some more estate case yeah, law. Yeah, we got some law. Two Supreme Court opinions in a weekend. That That's a record. And they were both yours. It's almost like they know if they do every other one. <laughs> It's going to go to Carson. Yeah, it's dropping on me. Hey, here's a horrible one. The Let's Supreme Court's already figured us out. <laughs> Here we go. This is uh, State v. Pierce Dion Williams, and this is the speedy trial balloon case that I uh, suggested earlier. Here the defendant was cited uh, with a uniform citation and complaint for, I believe, assault and some other uh, it was misdemeanor matters. And there, there wasn't really, nobody's really sure when he was cited with those because there wasn't a date of issuance on the uniform citation or complaint. And then he had a, you know, a, a court date that he had to show up to. He showed up to, I think, the first one, and then it was set for trial, didn't show up for that one. And then they set it for another hearing, uh, on an, and they were given leave to grant a failure to appear. And then he showed up to trial. They started the trial, and uh, Mr. Williams whipped out his... Uh, phone and started recording and it, he wouldn't stop uh wouldn't stop recording and and he kind of got into a back and forth with the court and uh the court he was pro se and the court says you know we're going to continue this and so you can get counsel and uh, be advised about how you should listen to what i'm saying when i tell you to put your phone away and he didn't uh show up for several more trials there were several more court dates set uh, for trial, and then finally, because the county attorney sought um, jail time, a public defender was uh, appointed, and this individual uh, set the matter for trial. I think there was one continuance with the PD, and then uh, after the state moved to continue the final trial, um, they moved for absolute discharge uh, of the. Um, of the uniform citation complaint because it wasn't brought within the six months as required um, without ex- exclusion periods. So here's where things get weird. They start going through everything and figuring out when, what time goes against the defendant and what time goes against the uh, plaintiff, or excuse me, the state. And in Lancaster County, apparently, when a, defense, a defendant calls in, they have these purple half sheets and these purple half sheets are used for court messages, uh, messages to the court saying defendant called is sick or whatever. And here, the defendant called at a very pivotal time and, and uh, asked said they couldn't be there for whatever reason. And this was on one of those purple half sheets, and I assume it was either you know you know filed in the court file in the paper file. It was not imaged, so there is no record of that. Um, there's no record of that in these proceedings or other proceedings of this phone message. So, um, the court goes through the analysis, you know, not excluding that time. That time is going to be charged against them because there's nothing in there. And then ultimately they find that speedy trial was not uh, violated. And um, they also expressed, which I believe is accurate, that the trial court had um, given a lot of leniency to him and his shenanigans with the phone. And I, I guess the defense argument on appeal was, well, the court should have just taken his phone, held him in contempt, and then moved and, and you know, kept going with the trial. 
Well, that's up to the court to decide. Um, as as we mentioned earlier and alluded to, this is a uh, quote from the Nebraska Supreme Court. This is one sentence. Trials have rules. Feel free to use that wherever you want and, and appropriately cite State v. Williams, 313-NEB-981. Trials have rules. Trials have rules. Trials have rules, and, and that's the end of that as far as that goes because it was affirmed on appeal and uh, the trial, the defendant is, while entitled to a trial, doesn't is not entitled to trial in the manner of his or her choosing. Now, this leads me to the question, why hasn't some entrepreneurial spirit inver- invented like a speedy trial app? Yeah, wouldn't that be handy, man? I mean, it's math. Yeah. You push a button and it stops, you push another an, push a button. And lawyers are inherently bad at that, <laughs> so that would be helpful for I us. I don't know. Let's let let's shut this podcast yeah, down. Maybe we we should, yeah, maybe we should. Hey, is that the Nebraska Supreme Court opinions? I think that's the Nebraska Supreme Court opinions. Wonderful. Let's go to the Nebraska Court of Appeals for this week. And Nebraska Court of Appeals, we start at Perry versus Buchanan. And this is a uh, pro se uh, tort case, essentially um, alleging two things, negligence and then um, an issue as far as premises liability. And the caveat I will put in here is that um, this was initially um, dismissed uh, for failure to uh, state a claim upon which relief could be granted, um, and then the appeal happens. And it seems like a case that wouldn't have a lot of meat, and you know, arguably there isn't a ton as far as from an appellate standpoint, but it does have um, an exceptional amount of great discussion on uh, both negligence theory and premises liability theory. And uh, anytime in the state of Nebraska, I find when you get a chance to have some case law and some discussion on facts, those are always um, wonderful. And so I am not going to go through this case at nauseum and bore everyone um, with those things. But I just think this is a case where if you have something that is an issue of premises liability, if you are wondering about how to properly plead a negligence claim in order to make sure that you have a well-pleaded complaint. These are, you know, the kind of cases that are just helpful to look at and get some guidance from our appellate courts on, you know, here's some law and here's some facts. And, you know, again, I, I'm not going to go much further into it than that, but if you have premises liability and you have negligence, this is a case that I would take a look at. It's a published opinion, so you can easily cite to it. Um, and, you know, again, it just has some really good discussion on, you know, drunk drivers and duty and all those kind of things. And you just don't get that a ton because uh, we don't have all that much case law in Nebraska. So uh, great opinion for those kind of things. Yeah, it's always good to get some law chunks that you can that you can pull from for your purposes um, and help your clients. So I have Allen v. Allen, uh, which is a protection order renewal case. A protection order was issued uh, from Kara Allen against Bradley Allen back in 2020. That was the first one for a domestic abuse protection order. It was renewed, I think, without a hearing from what I read um, in 2021. And then it was attempted to be renewed again in 2022. And then they had a hearing uh, regarding that. And the district court said, basically, I I don't know uh, what the standard here is as far as what the legislature intended, whether these should just be summarily, um, you know, granted when asked for a renewal or whether we should have uh, what the considerations are for whether a renewal should be issued. And the hearing, there was a record of those proceedings, and they indicated that the divorce case 
that was surrounding these protection orders was still ongoing. It was apparently highly contested. Uh, there were children involved, and actually the um, defendant here, the uh, ultimately the appellant, uh, was actually living next door because that was a, he was involved with a new relationship with the person next door. So he was next door, and he would make comments about how I'm seeing you and seeing the children and all these things. There's, there were more facts elicited in that time that uh, basically justified the renewal of that protection order. So the um, Nebraska Supreme Court, or excuse me, Nebraska Court of Appeals here in a published opinion does go through the protection order renewal standards and clarifies those and what you're looking for. And what it comes down to is, is there, it's always forward looking. So is there a material change now from where things were then that would remove the necessity of a protection order? Uh, because a protection order is a restriction on liberty, and it should be reviewed in order to see whether that's uh, consistent with um, the law and consistent with that liberty interest to, you know, not have to be told you can't be around somebody. So that's that's uh, what the court looks at. It's a good discussion of that if you have a protection order or especially a protection order renewal. Uh, this is one you're, you're going to want to take a look at and get cited. Okay, next case we come to is Richardson versus Omni Behavioral Health, and uh, this is an appeal um, essentially, uh, let's an appeal from a granting of summary judgment, but the main issue on appeal is whether or not, uh, there were facts to sustain a claim of negligent entrustment. And here, um, Omni Behavioral Health was responsible for, um, transporting a developmentally disabled individual, um, who was a ward of the state and they had allowed, um, a, the, the family of this individual or guardians of this individual to do, um, transport. Well, there was an individual who um, he ends up sustaining injuries um, when he was riding with uh, because of their negligent operation of a vehicle. And here they're saying that um, Omni, O-M-N-I, uh, should be responsible for uh, this negligent entrustment. And what our, our Court of Appeals says is that they maybe could have been um, responsible for this negligent entrustment um, but they weren't the ones who had negligently entrusted this individual with um, Wall Crawford, who was uh, the person who was driving. They had entrusted the individual to a Kelly and James Wall, who uh, were the individuals who had cared for this um, child and were doing transport. And then those individuals had then allowed the, the um, developmentally developmentally disabled individual to uh, be transported by Wall Crawford. And so there was a severing of that um, negligent entrustment because they had allowed, you know, these two individuals to uh, do transport. And then those individuals had, you know, f further pushed it down the line. And essentially um, our court of appeals goes through um, how, when we have that, um, when you permit a third person to do that thing, you're not then responsible for them negligently entrusting someone else uh, with that care. And so, again, if you have a negligent entrustment case and you want to look at um, a little bit of tort discussion, some of those things, it's another one of those cases where uh, we have more facts and uh, we get some good pieces of law and some tidbits on negligent entrustment. Yeah, that one's interesting. I, I, I think that was clarified very well, so I, I like that. Thank you. Um, Farah v. Spence is a civil trial. They had a, a jury trial on this, and the it's a PI case. A four-year-old was injured, um, seems very severely, in a parking lot in, uh, in Hall County somewhere. And in 
the uh, the damages, the special damages were around $173,000. And there was a, prior to the matter being submitted to the jury, both parties, the defendant and the plaintiff, moved at the close of the evidence for a directed verdict. And the on the issue of negligence, there was some disputed facts regarding uh, whether the defendant was properly looking out uh, in this parking lot. I think in a deposition, the defendant said that she was looking for a way to get out of the parking lot. And in another, she clarified that at trial and said, well, she was keeping a proper look at it. Everything it was just part of her motivation was to try and find a way out of the parking lot. So that was the evidence at trial. And then we're not quite sure whether the four-year-old darted out in front of uh, Miss Spence or whether the, the four-year-old was there before and, and, and able to be perceived before um, this child was uh, struck. So it, uh, the court ultimately affirms the um, trial court saying, I'm not going to give anybody a directed verdict. This is we're going to go to the jury on this, and that was a defense verdict ultimately from the jury. So it defines really well a duty to keep a proper lookout, and then there's the exception of something darting or what. I mean, the, I think the expression is darting, but there's more uh, technical legal uh, explanation for that. And then a directed verdict is proper only when reasonable minds can't differ, which is a pretty high standard um, for a fact question. And it's high on appeal, and that's why this was ultimately affirmed. But you try and think in this day and age of things that uh, reasonable minds could not differ on, and, and that's a pretty slim thing. Yeah, that one's becoming pretty tough, tougher by the day. Tougher by the day. All right, what do you got? Uh, final opinion we have is State versus McKeithen. Uh, this is an appeal from the District Court of Lancaster County um, on a uh, case where there were multiple counts of first-degree sexual assault and attempted um, child enticement. Uh, some pretty rough facts, uh, but it was a plea-based conviction. Um, the appeals were uh, based on excessive sentence and then ineffective assistance of counsel. Uh, those are pretty summarily um, done away with. Uh, there was one piece at the end where they uh, said that they should have asked uh, to uh, recuse the judge. And here um, you have to, um, you know, essentially allege why that individual uh, was biased or should have had to have recused. You can't just say that um, it's enough that um, you were deficient just for not asking to um, have a judge recuse themselves. And so you have to uh, plead those specific facts. And here they failed to do that. Um, and so this appeal uh, failed and was affirmed. That's it for this week. That's it. Join us next week. Be sure to check out episode one for our disclaimer. Um, what else is there? Oh, brought to you by Anderson Klein, Brewster, and Brandt. You know, I haven't gotten sick the whole time we've been doing this. You knocked knock on, on my, wood. Yeah, this I'm, is real wood. I well, don't think but. that counts. It looks like wood. I just think it's because I got a COVID booster every week last year. I just went in every day. Every day, I just gave a different name, and they just gave me a booster. You are immune from all. I'm. A, I feel a little funny, <laughs> and I got so much Bill Gates microchip in me. I mean, you glow at night, but <laughs> I do. And I'm one big dead coronavirus. The right kids now. find it cool though, so <laughs> that's I mean that's one thing. <laughs> they certainly do my my newfound superpowers, but I don't have a cold, so that's good. And we're gonna keep going into next week, and we will see you next week. I'm John Brandt, and I am Carson Messersmith. Have a great weekend, everybody.